High Rise by J. G. Ballard. Chapter One Critical Mass. Later, as he sat on his balcony eating the dog, Dr. Robert Lang reflected on the unusual events that had taken place within this huge apartment building during the previous three months. Now that everything had returned to normal, he was surprised that there had been no obvious beginning, no point beyond which their lives had moved into a clearly more sinister dimension. With its forty floors and thousand apartments, its supermarket and swimming pools, bank and junior school, all, in effect, abandoned in the sky, the high-rise offered more than enough opportunities for violence and confrontation. Certainly his own studio apartment on the 25th floor was the last place Lang would have chosen as an early skirmish ground. This overpriced cell, slotted almost at random into the cliff face of the apartment building, he had bought after his divorce specifically for its peace, quiet, and anonymity. Curiously enough, despite all Lang's efforts to detach himself from his two thousand neighbours, and the regime of trivial disputes and irritations that provided their only corporate life. It was here, if anywhere, that the first significant event had taken place. On this balcony, where he now squatted beside a fire of telephone directories, eating the roast hindquarter of the Alsatian before setting off to his lecture at the medical school. While preparing breakfast soon after eleven o'clock one Saturday morning three months earlier, Dr. Lang was startled by an explosion on the balcony outside his living room. A bottle of sparkling wine had fallen from a floor fifty feet above, ricocheted off an awning as it hurtled downwards and burst across the tiled balcony floor. The living room carpet was speckled with foam and broken glass, Lang stood in his bare feet among the sharp fragments, watching the agitated wine seethe across the cracked tiles. High above him, on the thirty-first floor, a party was in progress. He could hear the sounds of deliberately over-animated chatter, the aggressive blare of a record player. Presumably the bottle had been knocked over the rail by a boisterous guest, needless to say, no one at the party was in the least concerned about the ultimate destination of this missile. But as Lang had already discovered, people in high-rises tended not to care about tenants more than two floors below them. Trying to identify the apartment, Lang stepped across the spreading pool of cold froth. Sitting there, he might easily have found himself with the longest hangover in the world. He leaned out over the rail and peered up at the face of the building, carefully counting the balconies. As usual, though, the dimensions of the forty-story block made his head reel. Lowering his eyes to the tiled floor, he steadied himself against the door pillar. The immense volume of open space that separated the building from the neighbouring high-rise a quarter of a mile away unsettled his sense of balance. At times, he felt that he was living in the gondola of a ferris wheel, permanently suspended three hundred feet above the ground. Nonetheless, Lang was still exhilarated by the high-rise, one of five identical units in the development project, and the first to be completed and occupied. Together they were set in a mile-square area of abandoned dockland and warehousing along the north bank of the river. The five high-rises stood on the eastern perimeter of the project, looking out across an ornamental lake, at present an empty concrete basin surrounded by parking lots and construction equipment. On the opposite shore stood the recently completed concert hall, with Lang's medical school and the new television studios on either side. The massive scale of the glass and concrete architecture and its striking situation on a bend of the river sharply separated the development project from the rundown areas around it decaying nineteenth-century terraced houses and empty factories already zoned for reclamation. For all the proximity of the city, two miles away to the west along the river, the office buildings of central London belonged to a different world.
in time as well as space. Their glass curtain walling and telecommunication aerials were obscured by the traffic smog, blurring Lang's memories of the past. Six months earlier, when he had sold the lease of his Chelsea house and moved to the security of the high-rise, he had travelled forward fifty years in time, away from crowded streets, traffic hold-ups, rush-hour journeys on the underground, to student supervisions in a shared office in the old teaching hospital. Here, on the other hand, the dimensions of his life were space, light, and the pleasures of a subtle kind of anonymity. The drive to the physiology department of the medical school took him five minutes, and apart from this single excursion, Lang's life in the high-rise was as self-contained as the building itself. In effect, the apartment block was a small vertical city, its 2,000 inhabitants boxed up into the sky. The tenants corporately owned the building, which they administered themselves through a resident manager and his staff. For all its size, the high-rise contained an impressive range of services. The entire tenth floor was given over to a wide concourse, as large as an aircraft carrier's flight deck, which contained a supermarket, bank and hairdressing salon, a swimming pool and gymnasium, a well-stocked liquor store and a junior school for the few young children in the block. High above Lang, on the 35th floor, was a second, smaller swimming pool, a sauna, and a restaurant. Delighted by this glut of conveniences, Lang made less and less effort to leave the building. He unpacked his record collection and played himself into his new life, sitting on his balcony and gazing across the parking lots and concrete plazas below him. Although the apartment was no higher than the 25th floor, he felt for the first time that he was looking down at the sky, rather than up at it. Each day the towers of central London seemed slightly more distant, the landscape of an abandoned planet receding slowly from his mind. By contrast with the calm and unencumbered geometry of the concert hall and television studios below him, the ragged skyline of the city resembled the disturbed encephalograph of an unresolved mental crisis. The apartment had been expensive, its studio, living room and single bedroom, kitchen and bathroom dovetailed into each other to minimize space and eliminate internal corridors. To his sister, Alice Frobisher, who lived with her publisher husband in a larger apartment three floors below, Lang had remarked, the architect must have spent his formative years in a space capsule. I'm surprised the walls don't curve. At first, Lang found something alienating about the concrete landscape of the project, an architecture designed for war, on the unconscious level if no other. After all the tensions of his divorce, the last thing he wanted to look out on each morning was a row of concrete bunkers. However, Alice soon convinced him of the intangible appeal of life in a luxury high-rise. Seven years older than Lang, she made a shrewd assessment of her brother's needs in the months after his divorce. She stressed the efficiency of the building services, the total privacy. You could be alone here, in an empty building. Think of that, Robert. She added illogically. Besides, it's full of the kind of people you ought to meet. Here she was making a point that had not escaped Lang during his inspection visits. The 2,000 tenants formed a virtually homogenous collection of well-to-do professional people. Lawyers, doctors, tax consultants, senior academics and advertising executives, along with a smaller group of airline pilots, film industry technicians, and trios of air hostesses sharing apartments. By the usual financial and educational yardsticks, they were probably closer to each other than the members of any conceivable social mix with the same tastes and attitudes, fads and styles, clearly reflected in the choice of automobiles and the parking lots that surrounded the high-rise. In the elegant but somehow standardized way in which they furnished their apartments, in the selection of sophisticated foods in the supermarket delicatessen, in the tones of their self-confident voices. In short, they constituted the perfect background into which Lang could merge invisibly. 
his sister's excited vision of Lang alone in an empty building, was closer to the truth than she realized. The high-rise was a huge machine, designed to serve not the collective body of tenants, but the individual resident in isolation. Its staff of air-conditioning conduits, elevators, garbage disposal chutes, and electrical switching systems provided a never-failing supply of care and attention that a century earlier would have needed an army of tireless servants. Besides all this, once Lang had been appointed senior lecturer in physiology at the new medical school, the purchase of an apartment nearby made sense. It helped him as well to postpone once again any decision to give up teaching and take up general practice. But, as he told himself, he was still waiting for his real patients to appear. Perhaps he would find them here in the high-rise. Rationalizing his doubts over the cost of the apartment, Lang signed a 99-year lease and moved into his 1,000th share of the cliff face. The sounds of the party continued high over his head, magnified by the currents of air that surged erratically around the building. The last of the wine rilled along the balcony gutter, sparkling its way into the already immaculate drains. Lang placed his bare foot on the cold tiles and with his toes detached the label from its glass fragment. He recognized the wine immediately, a brand of expensive imitation champagne that was sold pre-chilled in the 10th floor liquor store and was its most popular line. They had been drinking the same wine at Alice's party the previous evening, in its way as confused an affair as the one taking place that moment over his head. Only too keen to relax after demonstrating all afternoon in the physiology laboratories, and with an eye on an attractive fellow guest, Lang had inexplicably found himself in a minor confrontation with his immediate neighbours on the 25th floor, an ambitious young orthodontic surgeon named Steele, and his pushy fashion consultant wife. Halfway through a drunken conversation, Lang had suddenly realised that he had managed to offend them deeply over their shared garbage disposal chute. The two had cornered Lang behind his sister's bar, where Steele fired a series of pointed questions at him, as though seriously disturbed by a patient's irresponsible attitude towards his own mouth. His slim face, topped by a centre parting, always an indication to Lang of some odd character strain, pressed ever closer, and he half expected Steele to ram a metal clamp or retractor between his teeth. His intense, glamorous wife followed up the attack, in some way challenged by Lang's offhand manner, his detachment from the serious business of living in the high-rise. Lang's fondness for pre-lunch cocktails, his nude sunbathing on the balcony, and his generally raffish air obviously unnerved her. She clearly felt that at the age of thirty, Lang should have been working twelve hours a day in a fashionable consultancy, and be in every way as respectably self-aggrandizing as her husband. No doubt she regarded Lang as some kind of internal escapee from the medical profession, with a secret tunnel into a less responsible world. This low-level bickering surprised Lang, but after his arrival at the apartment building, he soon recognized the extraordinary number of thinly-veiled antagonisms around him. The high-rise had a second life of its own. The talk at Alice's party moved on two levels. Never far below the froth of professional gossip was a hard mantle of personal rivalry. At times, he felt that they were all waiting for someone to make a serious mistake. After breakfast, Lang cleared the glass from the balcony. Two of the decorative tiles had been cracked. Mildly irritated, Lang picked up the bottleneck, still with its wired cork and foil in place, and tossed it over the balcony rail. A few seconds later, he heard it shatter among the cars parked below. Pulling himself together, Lang peered cautiously over the ledge. He might easily have knocked in someone's windscreen. Laughing aloud at this aberrant gesture, he looked up at the 31st floor. What were they celebrating at 11.30 in the morning? Lang listened to the noise mount as more guests arrived. Was this a party that had accidentally started too early, or one that had been going on all night and was now getting its second wind?
the internal time of the high-rise, like an artificial psychological climate, operated to its own rhythms, generated by a combination of alcohol and insomnia. On the balcony diagonally above him, one of Lang's neighbors, Charlotte Melville, was setting out a tray of drinks on a table. Queasily aware of his strained liver, Lang remembered that at Alice's party the previous evening, he had accepted an invitation to cocktails. Thankfully, Charlotte had rescued him from the orthodontic surgeon with the disposal shoot obsessions. Lang had been too drunk to get anywhere with this good-looking widow of thirty-five, apart from learning that she was a copywriter with a small but lively advertising agency. The proximity of her apartment, like her easy style, appealed to Lang, exciting in him a confusing blend of lechery and romantic possibility. As he grew older, he found himself becoming more romantic and more callous at the same time. Sex was one thing, Lang kept on reminding himself, that the high-rise potentially provided in abundance. Bored wives, dressed up as if for a lavish midnight gala on the observation roof, hung around the swimming pools and restaurant in the slack hours of the early afternoon, or strolled arm-in-arm arm along the tenth-floor concourse. Lang watched them saunter past him with a fascinated but cautious eye. For all his feigned cynicism, he knew that he was in a vulnerable zone in this period soon after his divorce. One happy affair, with Charlotte Melville or anyone else, and he would slip straight into another marriage. He had come to the high-rise to get away from all relationships. Even his sister's presence, and the reminders of their high-strung mother, a doctor's widow slowly sliding into alcoholism, at one time seemed too close for comfort. However, Charlotte had briskly put all these fears to rest. She was still preoccupied by her husband's death from leukemia, her six-year-old son's welfare, and, she admitted to Lang, her insomnia, a common complaint in the high-rise, almost an epidemic. All the residents he had met, on hearing that Lang was a physician, at some point brought up their difficulties in sleeping. At parties, people discussed their insomnia in the same way that they referred to the other built-in design flaws of the apartment block. In the early hours of the morning, the two thousand tenants subsided below a silent tide of seconal. Lang had first met Charlotte in the thirty-fifth floor swimming pool, where he usually swam, partly to be on his own, and partly to avoid the children who used the tenth floor pool. When he invited her to a meal in the restaurant, she promptly accepted. But as they sat down at the table, she said pointedly, Look, I only want to talk about myself. Lang had liked that. At noon, when he arrived at Charlotte's apartment, a second guest was already present, a television producer named Richard Wilder, a thick-set, pugnacious man who'd once been a professional rugby league player. Wilder lived with his wife and two sons on the second floor of the building. The noisy parties he held with his friends on the lower levels, airline pilots and hostesses sharing apartments, had already put him at the centre of various disputes. To some extent, the irregular hours of the tenants on the lower levels had cut them off from their neighbours above. In an unguarded moment, Lang's sister had whispered to him that there was a brothel operating somewhere in the high-rise. The mysterious movements of the air hostesses as they pursued their busy social lives, particularly on the floors above her own, clearly unsettled Alice, as if they in some way interfered with the natural social order of the building, its system of precedences entirely based on floor height. Lang had noticed that he and his fellow tenants were far more tolerant of any noise or nuisance from the floors above than they were from those below them. However, he liked Wilder, with his loud voice and rugby scrum manners. He let a needed dimension of the unfamiliar into the apartment block. His relationship with Charlotte Melville was hard to gauge. His powerful sexual aggression was overlaid by a tremendous restlessness. No wonder his wife, a pale young woman with a postgraduate degree who reviewed children's books for the literary weeklies, seemed permanently exhausted. As Lang stood on the balcony, 
accepting a drink from Charlotte. The noise of the party came down from the bright air, as if the sky itself had been wired for sound. Charlotte pointed to a fragment of glass on Lang's balcony that had escaped his brush. Are you under attack? I heard something fall. She called to Wilder, who was lounging back in the centre of her sofa, examining his heavy legs. It's those people on the 31st floor. Which people? Lang asked. He assumed that she was referring to a specific group, a clique of over-aggressive film actors or tax consultants, or perhaps a freak aggregation of dipsomaniacs. But Charlotte shrugged vaguely, as if it was unnecessary to be more specific. Clearly some kind of demarcation had taken place in her mind, like his own facile identification of people by the floors on which they lived. By the way, what are we all celebrating? He asked as they returned to the living room. Don't you know? Wilder gestured at the walls and ceiling. Full house? We've achieved critical mass? Richard means that the last apartment has been occupied, Charlotte explained. Incidentally, the contractors promised us a free party when the thousandth apartment was sold. I'll be interested to see if they hold it, Wilder remarked. Clearly he enjoyed running down the high-rise. The elusive Anthony Royal was supposed to provide the booze. You've met him, I think, he said to Lang. The architect who designed our hanging paradise. We play squash together, Lang rejoined. Aware of the hint of challenge in Wilder's voice, he added, Once a week. <laughs> I hardly know the man. But I like him. Wilder sat forward cradling his heavy head in his fists. Lang noticed that he was continually touching himself, forever inspecting the hair on his massive calves, smelling the backs of his scarred hands, as if he had just discovered his own body. You're favoured to have met him, Wilder said. I'd like to know why. An isolated character. I ought to resent him, but somehow I feel sorry for the man hovering over us like some kind of fallen angel. He has a penthouse apartment, Lang commented. He had no wish to become involved in any tug-of-war over his brief friendship with Royal. He had met this well-to-do architect, a former member of the consortium which had designed the development project, during the final stages of Royal's recovery from a minor car accident. Lang had helped him to set up the complex calisthenics machine in the penthouse where Royal spent his time, the focus of a great deal of curiosity and attention. As everyone continually repeated, Royal lived on top of the building, as if in some kind of glamorous shack. Royal was the first person to move in here, Wilder informed him. There's something about him I haven't put my finger on, perhaps even a sense of guilt. He hangs around up there as if he's waiting to be found out. I expected him to leave months ago. He has a rich young wife, so why stay on in this glorified tenement? Before Lang could protest, Wilder pressed on. I know Charlotte has reservations about life here. The trouble with these places is that they're not designed for children. The only open space turns out to be someone else's car park. By the way, Doctor, I'm planning to do a television documentary about high-rises, a really hard look at the physical and psychological pressures of living in a huge condominium such as this one. You'll have a lot of material. Uh, too much, as always. I wonder if Royal would take part. You might ask him, Doctor. As one of the architects of the block and its first tenant, his views would be interesting. Your own, too. As Wilder talked away rapidly, his words overrunning the cigarette smoke coming from his mouth, Lang turned his attention to Charlotte. She was watching Wilder intently, nodding at each of his points. Lang liked her determination to stick up for herself and her small son, her evident sanity and good sense. His own marriage, to a fellow physician and specialist in tropical medicine, had been a brief but total disaster a reflection of heaven only knew what needs. With unerring judgment, Lang had involved himself with this highly strung and ambitious young doctor, for whom Lang's refusal to give up teaching 
in itself suspicious and involve himself directly in the political aspects of preventive medicine had provided a limitless opportunity for bickering and confrontation. After only six months together, she had suddenly joined an international famine relief organization and left on a three-year tour. But Lang had made no attempt to follow her. For reasons he could not yet explain, he had been reluctant to give up teaching and the admittedly doubtful security of being with students who were still almost his own age. Charlotte, he guessed, would understand this. In his mind, Lang projected the possible course of an affair with her. The proximity and distance which the high-rise provided at the same time, that neutral emotional background against which the most intriguing relationships might develop, had begun to interest him for its own sake. For some reason he found himself drawing back even within this still imaginary encounter, sensing that they were all far more involved with each other than they realized. An almost tangible network of rivalries and intrigues bound them together. As he guessed, even this apparently casual meeting in Charlotte's apartment had been set up to test his attitude to the upper-level residents who were trying to exclude children from the 35th floor swimming pool. The terms of our leases guarantee us equal access to all facilities, Charlotte explained. We've decided to set up a parents' action group. Doesn't that leave me out? We need a doctor on the committee. The paediatric argument would come much more forcefully from you, Robert. Well, perhaps. Lang hesitated to commit himself. Before he knew it, he would be a character in a highly charged television documentary or taking part in a sit-in outside the office of the building manager. Reluctant at this stage to be snared into an interfloor wrangle, Lang stood up and excused himself. As he left, Charlotte had equipped herself with a checklist of grievances. Sitting beside Wilder, she began to tick off the complaints to be placed before the building manager, like a conscientious teacher preparing the syllabus for the next term. When Lang returned to his apartment, the party on the 31st floor had ended. He stood on his balcony in the silence, enjoying the magnificent play of light across the neighboring block 400 yards away. The building had just been completed, and by coincidence, the first tenants were arriving on the very morning that the last had moved into his own block. A furniture pan-technican was backing into the entrance to the freight elevator, and the carpets and stereo speakers dressing tables and bedside lamps would soon be carried up the elevator shaft to form the elements of a private world. Thinking of the rush of pleasure and excitement which the new tenants would feel as they gazed out for the first time from their aerial ledge on the cliff face, Lang contrasted it with the conversation he had just heard between Wilder and Charlotte Melville. However reluctantly, he now had to accept something he had been trying to repress that the previous six months had been a period of continuous bickering among his neighbors, of trivial disputes over the faulty elevators and air conditioning, inexplicable electrical failures, noise, competition for parking space, and in short, that host of minor defects which the architects were supposed specifically to have designed out of these overpriced apartments. The underlying tensions among the residents were remarkably strong, damped down partly by the civilized tone of the building and partly by the obvious need to make this huge apartment block a success. Lang remembered a minor but unpleasant incident that had taken place the previous afternoon on the 10th floor shopping concourse. As he waited to cash a check at the bank, an altercation was going on outside the doors of the swimming pool. A group of children, still wet from the water, were backing away from the imposing figure of a cost accountant from the 17th floor. Facing him in this unequal contest was Helen Wilder. Her husband's pugnacity had long since drained any self-confidence from her. Nervously trying to control the children, she listened stoically to the accountant's reprimand, now and then making some weak retort. Leaving the bank counter, Lang walked towards them, past the crowded checkout points of the supermarket and the lines of women under the dryers in the hairdressing salon. 
As he stood beside Mrs. Wilder, waiting until she recognized him, he gathered that the accountant was complaining that her children, not for the first time, had been urinating in the pool. Lang briefly interceded, but the accountant slammed away through the swing doors, confident that he had sufficiently intimidated Mrs. Wilder to drive her brood of children away forever. Thanks for taking my side. Richard was supposed to be here. She picked a damp thread of hair out of her eyes. It's becoming impossible. We arrange set hours for the children, but the adults come anyway. She took Lang's arm and squinted nervously across the crowded concourse. Do you mind walking me back to the elevator? It must sound rather paranoid, but I'm becoming obsessed with the idea that one day we'll be physically attacked. She shuddered under her damp towel as she propelled the children forward. It's almost as if these aren't the people who really live here. During the afternoon, Lang found himself thinking of this last remark of Helen Wilder's. Absurd though it sounded, the statement had a certain truth. Now and then his neighbours, the orthodontic surgeon and his wife, stepped onto their balcony and frowned at Lang, as if disapproving of the relaxed way in which he lay back in his reclining chair. Lang tried to visualise their life together, their hobbies, conversation, sexual acts. It was difficult to imagine any kind of domestic reality, as if the Steels were a pair of secret agents unconvincingly trying to establish a marital role. By contrast, Wilder was real enough, but hardly belonged to the high-rise. Lang lay back on his balcony, watching the dusk fall across the facades of the adjacent blocks. Their size appeared to vary according to the play of light over their surfaces. Sometimes, when he returned home in the evening from the medical school, he was convinced that the high-rise had managed to extend itself during the day. Lifted on its concrete legs, the forty-story block appeared to be even higher, as if a group of off-duty construction workers from the television studios had casually added another floor. The five apartment buildings on the eastern perimeter of the Mile Square project together formed a massive palisade that by dusk had already plunged the suburban streets behind them into darkness. The high-rises seemed almost to challenge the sun itself. Anthony Royal and the architects who had designed the complex could not have foreseen the drama of confrontation each morning between these concrete slabs and the rising sun. It was only fitting that the sun first appeared between the legs of the apartment blocks, raising itself over the horizon as if nervous of waking this line of giants. During the morning, from the office on the top floor of the medical school, Lang would watch their shadows swing across the parking lots and empty plazas of the project, sluice gates opening to admit the day. For all his reservations, Lang was the first to concede that these huge buildings had won their attempt to colonize the sky. Soon after nine o'clock that evening, an electrical failure temporarily blacked out the ninth, tenth, and eleventh floors. Looking back on this episode, Lang was surprised by the degree of confusion during the fifteen minutes of the blackout. Some two hundred people were present on the tenth floor concourse, and many were injured in the stampede for the elevators and staircases. A number of absurd but unpleasant altercations broke out in the darkness between those who wanted to descend to their apartments on the lower levels and the residents from the upper floors who insisted on escaping upwards into the cooler heights of the building. During the blackout, two of the twenty elevators were put out of action. The air conditioning had been switched off and a woman passenger trapped in an elevator between the tenth and eleventh floors became hysterical possibly the victim of a minor sexual assault. The restoration of light, in due course, revealed its crop of illicit liaisons, flourishing in the benevolent conditions of total darkness, like a voracious plant species. Lang was on his way to the gymnasium when the power failed. Uneager to join the melee on the concourse, he waited in a deserted classroom of the junior school. Sitting alone at one of the children's miniature desks, Surrounded by the dim outlines of their good-humoured drawings pinned to the walls, 
He listened to their parents scuffling and shouting in the elevator lobby. When the lights returned, he walked out among the startled residents and did his best to calm everyone down. He supervised the transfer of the hysterical woman passenger from the elevator to a lobby sofa. The heavy-boned wife of a jeweler on the 40th floor, she clung powerfully to Lang's arm, only releasing him when her husband appeared. As the crowd of residents dispersed, their fingers punching the elevator destination buttons, Lang noticed that two children had sheltered during the blackout in another of the classrooms. They were standing now in the entrance to the swimming pool, backing away defensively from the tall figure of the 17th floor cost accountant. This self-appointed guardian of the water held a long-handled pool skimmer like a bizarre weapon. Angrily, Lang ran forward, but the children were not being driven from the pool. They stepped aside when Lang approached. The accountant stood by the water's edge, awkwardly reaching the skimmer across the calm surface. At the deep end, three swimmers who had been treading water during the entire blackout were clambering over the side. One of them, he noticed without thinking, was Richard Wilder. Lang took the handle of the skimmer. As the children watched, he helped the accountant extend it across the water. Floating in the center of the pool was the drowned body of an Afghan hound. Chapter 2. Party Time During these days after the drowning of the dog, the air of overexcitement within the high-rise gradually settled itself. But to Dr. Lang, this comparative calm was all the more ominous. The swimming pool on the tenth floor remained deserted, partly, Lang assumed, because everyone felt that the water was contaminated by the dead Afghan. An almost palpable miasma hung over the slack water, as if the spirit of the drowned beast was gathering to itself all the forces of revenge and retribution present within the building. On his way to the medical school a few mornings after the incident, Lang looked in at the tenth floor concourse. After booking a squash court for his weekly game that evening with Anthony Royal, he walked towards the entrance of the swimming pool. He remembered the panic and stampede during the blackout. By contrast, the shopping mall was now almost empty, a single customer ordering his wines at the liquor store. Lang pushed back the swing doors and strolled around the pool. The changing cubicles were closed, the curtains drawn across the shower stalls. The official attendant, a retired physical training instructor, was absent from his booth behind the diving boards. Evidently the profanation of his water had been too much for him. Lang stood by the tiled verge at the deep end, under the unvarying fluorescent light. Now and then the slight lateral movement of the building in the surrounding airstream sent a warning ripple across the flat surface of the water, as if in its pelagic deeps an immense creature was stirring in its sleep. He remembered helping the accountant to lift the afghan from the water and being surprised by its lightness. With its glamorous plumage drenched by the chlorinated water, the dog had lain like a large stoat on the colored tiles. While they waited for the owner, a television actress on the 37th floor, to come down and collect the dog, Lang examined it carefully. There were no external wounds or marks of restraint. Conceivably, it had strayed from its apartment into a passing elevator and emerged onto the shopping concourse during the confusion of the power failure, fallen into the swimming pool and died there of exhaustion. But the explanation hardly fitted the facts. The blackout had lasted little more than 15 minutes, and a dog of this size was powerful enough to swim for hours. Besides, it could simply have stood on its hind legs in the shallow end. But if it had been thrown into the pool and held below the water in the darkness by a strong swimmer. Surprised by his own suspicions, Lang made a second circuit of the pool. Something convinced him that the dog's drowning had been a provocative act, intended to invite further retaliation in its turn. The presence of the fifty or so dogs in the high-rise had long been a source of irritation. Almost all of them 
were owned by residents on the top 10 floors, just as, conversely, most of the 50 children lived in the lower 10. Together, the dogs formed a set of over-pampered pedigree pets, whose owners were not noticeably concerned for their fellow tenants' comfort and privacy. The dogs barked around the car parks when they were walked in the evening, fouling the pathways between the cars. On more than one occasion, elevator doors were sprayed with urine. Lang had heard Helen Wilder complain that rather than use their five high-speed elevators which carried them from a separate entrance lobby directly to the top floors, the dog owners habitually transferred to the lower-level elevators, encouraging their pets to use them as lavatories. The rivalry between the dog owners and the parents of small children had, in a sense, already polarized the building. Between the upper and lower floors, the central mass of apartments, roughly from the 10th floor to the 30th, formed a buffer state. During the brief interregnum after the dog's drowning, a kind of knowing calm presided over the middle section of the high-rise, as if the residents had already realized what was taking place within the building. Lang discovered this when he returned that evening from the medical school. By six o'clock, the section of the parking lot reserved for the 20th to the 25th floors would usually be full, forcing him to leave his car in the visitor section 300 yards from the building. Reasonably enough, the architects had zoned the parking lots so that the higher a resident's apartment, and consequently the longer the journey by elevator, the nearer he parked to the building. The residents from the lower floors had to walk considerable distances to and from their cars each day, a sight not without its satisfaction, Lang had noticed. Somehow the high-rise played into the hands of the most petty impulses. That evening, however, as he reached the already crowded car park, Lang was surprised by his fellow tenant's tolerant behaviour. He arrived at the same time as his neighbour, Dr. Steele. By rights, they should have raced each other for the last vacant place and taken separate elevators to their floor. But tonight, each beckoned the other forward in a show of exaggerated gallantry and waited while the other parked. They even walked together to the main entrance. In the lobby, a group of tenants stood outside the manager's office, remonstrating noisily with his secretary. The electrical supply system on the ninth floor was still out of order, and at night the floor was in darkness. Fortunately, it was light until late in the summer evening, but the inconvenience to the 50 residents on the floor was considerable. None of the appliances in their apartments would function, and the limits of cooperation with their neighbours on the floors above and below had soon been reached. Steele watched them unsympathetically. Although he was in his late twenties, his manner was already securely middle-aged. Lang found himself fascinated by his immaculate centre parting, almost an orifice. They're always complaining about something, Steele confided to Lang as they stepped into an elevator. If it isn't this, it's that. They seem unwilling to accept that the services in a new building take time to settle down. Still, it must be a nuisance to have no power. Steele shook his head. They persistently overload the master fuses with their elaborate stereo systems and unnecessary appliances. Electronic baby minders because the mothers are too lazy to get out of their easy chairs. Special mashes for their children's food. Lang waited for the journey to end, already regretting his newfound solidarity with his neighbour. For some reason, Steele made him nervous. Not for the first time. He wished he had purchased an apartment above the 30th floor. The high-speed elevators were bliss. The children here look well enough to me, he remarked when they stepped out at the 25th floor. The surgeon held his elbow in a surprisingly powerful grip. He smiled reassuringly, flashing a mouth like a miniature cathedral of polished ivory. Believe me, Lang, I see their teeth. The punitive tone in Steele's voice, as if he were describing a traditionally feckless band of migrant workers rather than his well-to-do neighbours, came as a surprise to Lang. He knew casually a few of the ninth-floor residents, a sociologist who was a friend of Charlotte Melville's, and an air traffic controller 
who played string trios with friends on the 25th floor, an amusing and refined man, to whom Lang often talked as he carried his cello into the elevator. But distance lent disenchantment. The extent of this separation of loyalties was brought home to Lang when he set off to play squash with Anthony Royal. He took an elevator up to the 40th floor, and as usual, arrived ten minutes early so that he could go out onto the roof. The spectacular view always made Lang aware of his ambivalent feelings for this concrete landscape. Part of its appeal lay all too clearly in the fact that this was an environment built, not for man, but for man's absence. Lang leaned against the parapet, shivering pleasantly in his sports clothes. He shielded his eyes from the strong air currents that rose off the face of the high-rise. The cluster of auditorium roofs, curving roadway embankments and rectilinear curtain walling formed an intriguing medley of geometries. Less a habitable architecture, he reflected, than the unconscious diagram of a mysterious psychic event. Fifty feet away to Lang's left, a cocktail party was in progress. Two buffet tables covered with white cloths had been laid with trays of canapes and glasses, and a waiter was serving drinks behind a portable bar. Some thirty guests in evening dress stood about talking in small groups. For a few minutes Lang ignored them, absent-mindedly tapping his racket's case on the parapet, but something about the hard, over-animated chatter made him turn. Several of the guests were looking in his direction, and Lang was certain that they were talking about him. The party had moved nearer, and the closest guests were no more than ten feet away. All were residents from the top three floors. Even more unusual was the self-conscious formality of their dress. At none of the parties in the high-rise had Lang seen anyone dressed in anything other than casual wear. Yet here, the men wore dinner jackets and black ties, the women floor-length evening dresses. They carried themselves in a purposeful way, as if this were less a party than a planning conference. Almost within arm's reach, the immaculate figure of a well-to-do art dealer was squaring up to Lang, the lapels of his dinner jacket flexing like an overworked bellows. On either side of him were the middle-aged wives of a stock exchange jobber and a society photographer, staring distastefully at Lang's white sports clothes and sneakers. Lang picked up his racket's case and towel bag, but his way to the staircase was blocked by the people around him. The entire cocktail party had moved along the roof, and the waiter now stood alone between the bar and the buffet tables. Lang leaned against the parapet. For the first time, conscious of the immense distance to the ground below, he was encircled by a heavily breathing group of his fellow residents, so close that he could smell the medley of expensive scents and aftershaves. He was curious as to what exactly they were going to do, but at the same time was aware that at any moment a meaningless act of violence might occur. Dr. Lang, uh, ladies, would you release the doctor? At what seemed the last moment, a familiar figure with adroit hands and a soft walk called out reassuringly. Lang recognized the jeweler whose hysterical wife he had briefly examined during the power failure. As he greeted Lang, the guests casually dispersed, like a group of extras switched to another scene. Without thinking, they strolled back to their drinks and canapes. Was it fortunate that I arrived? The jewel appeared at Lang, as if puzzled by his presence in this private domain. You're here to play squash with Anthony Royal. I'm afraid he's decided to decline. He added, as much to himself as to Lang. My wife should have been here. She was treated appallingly, you know. They were like animals. Slightly shaken, Lang accompanied him to the stairway. He looked back at the cocktail party, with its well-bred guests, uncertain whether he had imagined the imminent attack on him. After all, what could they have actually done? Hardly tossed him over the edge. As he pondered this, he noticed a familiar pale-haired figure in a white safari jacket, standing with one hand on the calisthenics machine in the penthouse, overlooking the northern end of the roof. Resting at his feet was Royal's Alsatian, 
with its arctic coat, without doubt the premier dog in the high rise. Making no attempt to hide himself, Anthony Royal was watching Lang with a thoughtful gaze. As always, his expression was an uneasy mixture of arrogance and defensiveness, as if he were all too aware of the built-in flaws of this huge building he had helped to design, but was determined to outstare any criticism, even at the price of theatrical gestures, such as the Alsatian and his white hunter's jacket. Although he was over fifty, his shoulder-length fair hair made him look uncannily youthful, as if the cooler air at these great heights had somehow preserved him from the ordinary processes of aging. His bony forehead, still marked by the scars of his accident, was tilted to one side, and he seemed to be checking that an experiment he had set up had now been concluded. Lang raised one hand and signaled to him as the jeweller ushered him briskly below, but Royal made no reply. Why had he not cancelled their squash game by telephone? For a moment, Lang was certain that Royal had deliberately let him come up to the roof, knowing that the party was in progress, simply out of interest in the guests' reactions and behaviour. The next morning, Lang rose early, eager to get on. He felt fresh and clear-headed, but without realising why, he decided to take the day off. Promptly at nine, after pacing about for two hours, he telephoned his secretary at the medical school and postponed that afternoon's supervision. When she expressed regret at Lang's illness, it's all right, I'm not ill. Something important has come up. What? Puzzled by his own behaviour, Lang wandered around the small apartment. Charlotte Melville was also at home. She was dressed for the office in a formal business suit, but made no attempt to leave. She invited Lang over for coffee, but when he arrived an hour later, she absent-mindedly handed him a glass of sherry. His visit, Lang soon discovered, was a pretext for him to examine her son. The boy was playing in his room, but according to Charlotte, was not feeling well enough to go to the junior school on the tenth floor. Annoyingly, the young sister of an airline pilot's wife on the first floor had declined to babysit. It's a nuisance. She's usually only too keen. I've relied on her for months. She sounded rather vague on the phone, as if she was being evasive. Lang listened sympathetically, wondering whether he should volunteer to look after the child, but there was no hint of this in Charlotte's voice. Playing with the boy, Lang realized that there was nothing wrong with him. Lively as ever, he asked his mother if he could go to his third-floor playgroup that afternoon. Without thinking, she refused. Lang watched her with growing interest. Like himself, Charlotte was waiting for something to happen. They did not have long to wait. In the early afternoon, the first of a fresh series of provocations took place between the rival floors, setting in motion again the dormant machinery of disruption and hostility. The incidents were trivial enough, but Lang knew already that they reflected deep-rooted antagonisms that were breaking through the surface of life within the high-rise at more and more points. Many of the factors involved had long been obvious. Complaints about noise and the abuse of the building's facilities, rivalries over the better-sited apartments, those away from elevator lobbies and the service shafts with their eternal rumbling. There was even a certain petty envy of the more attractive women who were supposed to inhabit the upper floors, a widely held belief that Lang had enjoyed testing. During the electricity blackout, the 18-year-old wife of a fashion photographer on the 38th floor had been assaulted in the hairdressing salon by an unknown woman. Presumably in retaliation, three air hostesses from the second floor were aggressively jostled by a party of marauding top-floor matrons led by the strong-shouldered wife of the jeweler. Watching from Charlotte's balcony, Lang waited as the first of these incidents took place. Standing there with a pretty woman, a drink in one hand, he felt pleasantly light-headed. Below them, on the ninth floor, a children's party was in full swing. The parents made no attempt to restrain their offspring, in effect urging them to make as much noise as possible. Within half an hour, fueled by a constant flow of alcohol, the parents took over from their children. Charlotte laughed openly 
as soft drinks were poured onto the cars below, drenching the windscreens and roofs of the expensive limousines and sports saloons in the front ranks. These lively proceedings were watched by hundreds of residents who had come out onto their balconies. Playing up to their audience, the parents egged on their children. The party was soon out of control. Drunken children tottered about helplessly. High above them, on the 37th floor, a woman barrister began to shout angrily, outraged by the damage to her open-topped sports car, whose black leather seats were covered with melting ice cream. A pleasant carnival atmosphere reigned. At least it made a change, Lang felt, from the formal behavior of the high-rise. Despite themselves, he and Charlotte joined in the laughter and applause as if they were spectators at an impromptu amateur circus. A remarkable number of parties were being held that evening. Usually, few parties took place other than at weekends, but on this Wednesday evening, everyone was involved in one revel or another. Telephones rang continuously, and Charlotte and Lang were invited to no less than six separate parties. I ought to get my hair done. Charlotte took his arm happily, almost embracing Lang. What exactly are we celebrating? The question surprised Lang. He held Charlotte's shoulder as if protecting her. God only knows. Nothing to do with fun and games. One of the invitations had come from Richard Wilder. Instantly, both he and Charlotte declined. Why did we refuse? Charlotte asked, her hand still on the receiver. He was expecting us to say no. The Wilders live on the second floor, Lang explained. Things are rather rowdy down there. Robert, that's a rationalization. Behind Charlotte, as she spoke, her television set was showing the newsreel of an attempted prison breakout. The sound had been turned down, and the silent images of crouching warders and police and the tears of barricaded cells flickered between her legs. Everyone in the high-rise, Lang reflected, watched the television with the sound down. The same images glowed through his neighbor's doorways when he returned to his apartment. For the first time, people were leaving their front doors ajar and moving casually in and out of each other's apartments. However, these intimacies did not extend beyond each resident's immediate floor. Elsewhere, the polarization of the building proceeded apace. Finding that he had run out of liquor, Lang took the elevator down to the 10th floor concourse. As he expected, there was a heavy run on alcohol and long lines of impatient residents stood outside the liquor store. Seeing his sister Alice near the counter, Lang tried to enlist her help. Without hesitating, she turned him down and promptly launched into a vigorous denunciation of the tomfoolery that afternoon. In some way, she clearly associated Lang with the lower floor tenants responsible, identifying him with Richard Wilder and his rowdies. As Lang waited to be served, what resembled a punitive expedition from the upper floors caused a fracas in the swimming pool. A party of residents from the top three floors arrived in a belligerent mood. Among them was the actress whose Afghan hound had drowned in the pool. She and her companions began by fooling about in the water, drinking champagne on a rubber raft against the swimming pool rules and splashing people leaving the changing cubicles. After a futile attempt to intercede, the elderly attendant gave up and retreated to his booth behind the diving boards. The elevators were full of aggressive pushing and heaving. The signal buttons behaved erratically, and the elevator shafts drummed as people pounded impatiently on the doors. On their way to a party on the 27th floor, Lang and Charlotte were jostled when their elevator was carried down to the third floor by a trio of drunken pilots. Bottles in hand, They'd been trying for half an hour to reach the tenth floor. Seizing Charlotte good-humouredly around the waist, one of the pilots almost dragged her off to the small projection theatre beside the school, which had previously been used for showing children's films. The theatre was now screening a private programme of blue movies, including one apparently made on the premises with locally recruited performers. At the party on the twenty-seventh floor, given by Adrian Talbot, an effeminate but likable psychiatrist at the medical school, Lang began to relax for the first time that day. 
he noticed immediately that all the guests were drawn from the apartments nearby. Their faces and voices were reassuringly